Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and this week I am interviewing Rina Gagneja. And uh, Rina, you live in London or somewhere in England? In London. In London. That's okay. Yeah. And um, I don't. I always come across people, and I never remember how, and I don't remember how I first discovered Rena, but she's out there. She's got a website and she has a, a podcast, which I actually subscribe to, although I haven't started listening to it yet because I have so many things to listen to, but I intend to. And um, we'll link to all that uh, on the you know little biography section of batgap.com when I, when I put up this interview, and I think you'll find lots of interesting things to explore. Um, but Rena appears to have a very interesting story as interesting as stories can be. And uh, she's also a very kind of uh, caring and generous person. Recently I was applying to uh, try to get on this uh, Oprah Winfrey thing where she's looking for um, people to do shows on her new network. And Rena very kindly and without even being asked put up a whole page on her website encouraging her viewers and, and uh, visitors to vote for me in that. So I, I very much appreciated that, and because uh, I got to know Rena a little bit better, discovered that you know she had had a spiritual awakening and uh, kind of an interesting story behind that. So I asked if she'd like to be interviewed, and here we are. <laughs> so Rena, welcome. Hi, thanks. You're welcome. We can do this in any way you like. Uh, sometimes pe people like to go kind of chronologically, you know, starting with their teen years and or whenever they first kind of w got bit by the spiritual bug and working up to the, you know, their awakening and then what's happened since then and so on. Other times they like to just sort of start with the awakening itself and then just kind of explore in either direction as it, as it seems appropriate. So how would you like to do it? Um, however you'd like to do it. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about you know what your life was like uh, before your awakening and what you feel led up to it or, or precipitated it? Okay, sure. Well, we'll we'll go chronologically. I think that kind of makes it easier and um, just to get going. Um, well, I was born in India and came to the UK when I was six. Born into a Hindu family. I lived in Birmingham for a few years and then moved to London. I was at university doing languages, German and Spanish. I suppose I could say that I spent many long years on a personal development journey, always interested in um, knowing the truth, as I now call it, truth. At the time, I didn't know what I was searching for, but I was always searching. And during a 20-odd year, maybe more span, as I said, I was born into a Hindu family, but we never really practiced Hinduism avidly. We weren't a religious family, but obviously you have the customs, the traditions, you go to temples, etc. And then I started to practice this Japanese form of Buddhism, um, which I came across in Vienna when I was studying German there as part of my university degree. Actually, I initially came across it in France, but I was living in Vienna, so I went back and discovered that all these people were sitting around in their living rooms chanting these old Chinese words. So, oh, was that uh, Nisha and Shoshu Buddhism, the Namyoho Renge Kyo? That's the one. Oh yeah, I That's ran. In, I ran into that was when I was a hippie in uh, 
1968, I was high on marijuana walking down the street in Los Angeles, and somebody came running up to me and said, how would you like to go to a Buddhist lecture? And I said, sure. So we went to this little apartment, and everyone was chanting that. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how it happens. Yeah. And uh, I just got drawn in by the people are really caring and nice. And I was in Vienna. I didn't know too many people. My dad was working there. But I, in terms of my age group, I didn't really know that many people. So to come across a group of people, although I was searching, partly it was also because I wanted some friends. Mm -hmm. So I wanted a social life. So I got in, involved. And when I came back to the UK, I carried on. Mm -hmm. And I did that really, really assiduously for seven years. Mm. I took up sort of leadership positions in the organization. And you know, I think it kind of bemused my family quite a bit because they just couldn't get it. It was not really a comfortable subject, you know. <laughs> and you have an altar at home, which you, you clean and take care of and put greenery. And you have a mandala uh, that sits in the middle that you get given, you know, in a ceremony. The Gahonzen, right? Isn't it called? That's I have, yeah. It's amazing I remember that, considering that I was 18 and stoned at the time, but I remember <laughs> the detail. <laughs> the Hansen, right. and I don't want to go into too many details of that because it's in the past, right. and I obviously no longer do that now. But during that time scale, I did take a trip to Japan on a pilgrimage and went to the head temple at the foot of Mount Fuji and saw these massive Gahonzons. Mm -hmm. um, well, saw the, I uh, can't remember now what they call it, but the main Gahonzon. Beautiful gold writing. I mean, as a work of art, it's wonderful. But obviously, from my point of view then and their point of view, it was a hugely much more than <laughs> that. So anyway, after seven years, I decided to pack it in. That was quite a traumatic time, really, because all my friends, my whole life revolved around Buddhist activities. Mm -hmm. So it was quite a decision. Were you getting disillusioned or you just felt like you weren't getting much benefit out of it or what? Both. Yeah. Both. I was disillusioned. The interesting thing is that the lay people and the priesthood were having an argument. Uh -huh. And there's an issue about the authenticity of the Gahonsons that had been issued. So, you know, you spent years chanting your mind away at this Gahonson, and then suddenly they turn around and say, actually, it may not be the real thing. <laughs> so, all of that, and I didn't really know what I was getting from it, except getting enthralled into the human dynamics of an organization. Any organization has these dynamics going on that, uh, you know, power trips, ego, this and that. To me, what I wanted was something spiritual, something, you know, I wanted the Buddhahood that they were talking about. I wanted to um, attain something, but that wasn't happening. And instead, I was feeling not very happy about the whole thing. So I left. And uh, later on, my third religion was Christianity. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I practiced for two years and went to a local church and was baptized in water. Uh -huh. Did you approach it in a sort of a mystical sense or more of a fundamentalist uh, belief-oriented sense? 
I don't know what, how I approached it really, to be honest, but my husband at the time, he started going to this church and the pastor came around one day. I was not very happy in life yeah. at that point. As I look back, my reaching out for a system of belief or a religion or school of thought has always been at a time when I've not been happy in life. And that's quite interesting because now I do feel that religion is something that fills something that you don't feel you can provide yourself or find yourself and so it's kind of like filling um giving you the answers that mm -hmm. you feel you haven't got yeah so i was looking for support i wasn't happy although i wouldn't I, necessarily say that that's a wrong thing in its own at, at a certain stage i mean if you have a broken leg and you're wearing a cast there's nothing wrong with wearing crutches using crutches you know but at a certain point the, crutch, the crutches become an encumbrance rather than an aid I guess so but I'd say there's a slight difference in that if you've got a broken leg you have to wear crutches True. but you know, in life you don't have to follow a religion so the interesting thing is why do people follow a religion and the interesting thing for me is why couldn't I just be satisfied with Hinduism you know I really don't know but I just felt this pull, this drive to explore, to want to find the truth, and I guess that's been my path. So, no, there's nothing wrong with it, if we want to use that word, but I'm not sure there's anything right with it either. <laughs> I, th I think some people might, you know, it might be suggested that if you could really penetrate to the core of any religion, you'd find something really uh, valuable there, you know, but it's when people get hung up on the externals. Like, you know, if you just satisfy yourself with the skin of an orange, you're not going to be very satisfied, but if you can get to the inner juice, then that will, that will give you something. And, and all too often, I think people fail to re recognize the essence of what the religious founder was actually experiencing and saying and instead they get hung up on all kinds of you know decorative aspects well I guess so I mean I know that people say that and I used to say that for a while as well that a lot of religions have uh, something good at the core and I'm sure they do but that core is something that is common it's not particular to any particular religion so therefore why would you need to go to a religion to find that core when you can find it here and now? Very true. Uh, you know, it so, was said that Ramakrishna actually, after his realization, pursued all the different religions and went through all of their various uh, procedures in order to again and again arrive at the same core. So, you're right. I mean, why would you need to do anything else other than realize what's here right now? But I, I, I'm just sort of playing devil's advocate a little bit, you know, I, I sort of feel like there is and can be a value for people, and obviously that's why so many people do it, of, uh, you know, actively engaging in a particular re religion at their stage of experience. You know, I, it's not realistic to expect that the entire world is going to drop all their religious practices. People do these things. And, you know, if we consider there to be stages of development or, sta you know, stages of evolution, then all these different things are appropriate for people at various stages. And at a certain stage, they become inappropriate, as was your own experience. I mean, you did what you did. It seemed right at the time. And at a certain point, it didn't seem right. And you went on to something else. Yeah, that's right. Um, so it is irrelevant and okay to follow a religion. No, yeah. no one thinks it's not, and everybody has their own 
journey to travel and whatever that involves, they must travel it and that's what people do. But my seeking, if you like, was really to do with what is the truth? So when I was following Christianity, I believed what was told, what I read, etc. Now, from my point of view, and I do have a few Christian friends, so I'm aware that when I speak about this, it isn't always an easy topic to right. discuss because religion runs so very deep in terms of people's being and their conditioning. So I'm fully aware of that. But at the end of the day, there's one truth in my experience. There are just, you know, different approaches to it. Yeah. And that may well include religion. But you see, I don't want to get too much into it, but you then have the question of whether the basis of various religions are actually true. Mm -hmm. So what we take to be true in terms of a particular religion is that real? Did that actually happen? The, the beliefs that people hold, they don't generally question them. Right. I was always questioning. I was always asking the, the, you know, various questions that I found that if you believe something and somebody comes along and questions it, it's uncomfortable. Nobody wants to go there because it would mean that they would have to question their whole outlook on life, the universe and everything, and people are fearful, right. etc. Which is, in my opinion, the healthiest thing they could do. I mean, I think everything should be questioned. Ultimately, you can't find certainty or security in a belief. It's, it's just a belief. <laughs> you, know? you know, it's like one little peephole on the universe uh, among millions of peepholes, and no one peephole is going to contain the whole universe. Exactly. So anyway, I kind of interrupted your story. You went into this Christian phase, and that's where we left off. Yeah, and in between, there were lots of other phases, mm -hmm. lots of other practices, workshops, things that I did regularly with a particular organization, say, or then I, I read loads of spiritual books and loads of different things. And then, you know, when I started to practice Christianity, I chucked them all away because it wasn't the done thing to have such books in your home. <laughs> So I'd given away my Gahonson as well because of like superstition and this and that, all this kind of stuff. Anyway, so I read, learned, looked high and low, then Christianity. Then I just wasn't happy with that, wasn't able to believe it anymore. So I withdrew from the church. And then I did nothing in terms of seeking. I was just too busy dealing with the daily stresses of my life. And that was a few years ago. And I was working in IT in a, in a corporate environment for several years in London. I found that quite difficult. I ended up with pain and, and uh, repetitive strain injury in my neck, shoulders, arms and hands. To such an extent that I had pain constantly and I couldn't work on the computer without wanting to lie down all the time. So I went off work and I was at work for quite some time. And during this time, I had a lot of time to myself. When my I've got two boys, when they were out, I was at home. And there was an external camera. It doesn't really matter what that was. What happened was I experienced something difficult externally in my life and I found myself in a place of darkness I could call it heavy darkness that didn't 
seem to go at all and was greater than I'd ever experienced before. I experienced great pain and saw it as the accumulation of, of a lot in, in my life coming to a, to a head, but I just couldn't find a way through it. And I existed like this for several weeks. I didn't tell anyone. I just managed to take care of my daily life, the house, kids, etc., etc. But inwardly, I was having a little panic and I was feeling extremely scared. And I was scared that this was how my life was going to be. So I didn't know what it was. The external catalyst had come and gone, and it wasn't that. I just didn't know. I did not know what was going on. Anyway, eventually, I started to look on the internet. I started to look for healers. I went for shamanic healing, I went for Reiki healing, and I, I looked for people who could help me. Alongside this, I started to experience a feeling of nothingness within me. And this wasn't something I'd known about consciously or read about, really. So I was just freaked out. I, so I so felt, you didn't like the nothingness, it added to your fear. Yeah. yeah. It was like, oh my, you know, what is this feeling? And I thought if I tell, share it with other people, they'll just think I'm crazy. Right. Because how can you say to someone, I just keep feeling this feeling of nothingness. Right. <laughs> you know? It sounds weird. Yeah. Or I feel this void or this emptiness. And it was like it was in my stomach. I mean, if you had to kind of locate it in your body, it would be in my gut. Hmm. So that was but it, there. But it wasn't the physical sensation, or was it? It had I'd a physical say, correlate, maybe? Yeah. I'd yeah. say it, it corresponded to my belly area. Uh -huh. That's where I would kind of feel it. Right. Yeah, so that's what I was facing, not knowing what was going on. But I came across two, two individuals who started to really help me. One of them put me in touch with Jiddu Krishnamurti. Mm -hmm. You know, I really don't go in for spiritual teachers at all. And it's kind of uncanny because I was born in India where there's like masses of them. And people go from all over the world and go to India and follow a teacher and, and um, try and become enlightened. But I've never been one for that and probably that's why I just couldn't continue with any religion because I don't believe that one needs to follow any particular one person for ages. I mean, you, you, you know, for a short amount of time, this is what Jiddu Krishnamurti was for me. He, for during that period of time, for I'd say perhaps a year or so, he turned around my situation so that I could understand and experience it. So he's the uh, one, uh, not UG Krishnamurti, but the other okay. Krishnamurti. Yeah. The well-known yeah. one. Okay, good. Yes, and I liked him particularly because he didn't actually want people to follow him. He was very, you know, he didn't go out to get a following. I liked that about him. Anyway, what he said was, very incisive and it's not something that you can just read and go oh yeah that was a good read you either take it on board and it affects you deeply or not and I guess I was in the right place because I needed to hear what he said mm -hmm. through 
all this learning and speaking to one or two people, I saw that the pain and suffering I was experiencing was all to do with everything that I thought I had been, everything that I thought I was, my mm. conditioning, the roles I played, the life that I built for myself in terms of how I saw life and what, what the filter that I had, the image that I had of myself. I frankly felt emotionally totally, totally drained. The stresses and emotional stuff that I'd been carrying I was able to slowly, slowly release all of that, mm. most of it. I had to do healing work, looking back at my past, my family, everything. It wasn't an easy thing. It was very painful. Were you but doing that healing work on your own or were you doing it with the help of some kind of healer? Both. 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 I had um, help from others, but essentially you do the work alone. Mm -hmm. They can guide you and point you in the right direction, but um, you do the work alone. Nobody can do it for you. So because I had a lot of time at home, I started to meditate a lot more than I'd ever done. I read. I just existed and felt for the first time. I, I began to feel my feelings. Yeah, and I realized that I'd never been able to feel my feelings. Right. Not in a true sense. Mm -hmm. I'd al always analyzed them. I was the sort of person that knew everything. I know myself. That was me before. I just knew it all. But it was all at the head level. Mm -hmm. So really, I guess you could say, you know, there's that saying that says the longest journey you'll ever take is the 18 inches from your head to your heart. <laughs> and yeah. that was the journey that I traveled, for example, I went to see this one shamanic healer and in that was a, a, a turning point because I saw a stranger offering me such authentic love mm. and I realized that I'd never been able to actually show love, be love, be honest about myself. It's, it's very difficult to actually talk about it sometimes with people because we have this embarrassment about feelings and emotions and and in many cultures you have that and certainly in the Indian culture you know there is this embarrassment you just don't talk about feelings you you just don't cry you know and if you do you kind of shut it down and this is this is what I'd always done but you can't live like that and be happy in my experience you can't continue to live a mental life I don't know why that got into the culture, you know, because, I mean, if you read the Ramayana, there was all kinds of emotionalism when, you know, people were always crying with tears of joy when, when some sage would show up or, you know, practically dying of grief when Ram decided to go off to the forest. I mean, there was a lot of emotionalism, but I guess somehow it got uh, squelched out of the culture or something. Yeah, somehow it did, because people have a, a view of Indians or India as being like really spiritual and in one sense it is but if you know the real India and how people are there they're just struggling with their daily lives mm -hmm. and so on and there are some real fundamental emotional blockages you could say to the culture itself huh. I remember about a year or two ago there was a law passed in India whereby for the first time you can have same-sex marriages uh -huh. And I remember watching one of the lawyers on the news talking about it in India, and he said that the Indian 
culture is a shame-based culture. Hmm. And it is. I don't know if you can explain where it comes from, but in people's psyche, there is this um, kind of suppression of their feelings. And I have various people of my generation, Asians, who've talked to me, and people are experiencing that. Hmm. But it's only through being authentic in life that we can find peace because otherwise we're always on a kind of conveyor belt of, of hiding what's really going on. Mm -hmm. And that was what was happening to me during that time, about three years ago, always trying to hide what was really going on, but I kind of got just so tired and I couldn't do it anymore. Mm. I just gave up. I just surrendered. Surrendered in the sense that I just can't play the game. So you're building up to a, a climax here of what happened okay. to you. I don't know if it's a if it's a climax or a or a complete anti-climax. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of building up, hoping that this wow enlightenment thing is going to happen. But the way I kind of experienced what I experienced was very ordinary. And yet you can say, well, you know, words are kind of limiting. Anyway, what I experienced was some realizations of the fact that this nothingness, this emptiness, this void that I was experiencing was actually a nice place. Mm. You know, it was actually where I found my peace. Mm. I found peace and I found a sense of complete connectedness with people. I found understanding of myself. I found all my answers were, were, were answered, really. I mean, questions were answered. Was there uh, a moment that you could have marked on a calendar when that realization occurred and the void kind of became your predominant place where you resided? Or did it kind of just sneak up on you so incrementally that you kind of never really noticed the shift? Well, it was incremental and then looking back in retrospect I could see that there were certain moments but at the time I didn't sort of go oh you know this is happening right. it was just happening yeah so there were some key moments which were like more to do with like instantaneous healing mm -hmm. of stuff I was carrying and therefore if one heals I i.e if what one's carrying is released and it goes and it's gone, then what's left is not a lot. It's just <laughs> being and being okay yeah. with whatever there is. Mm -hmm. One um, particular moment was, it was about a year after this particularly dark period and Whilst I'd had a lot of realizations and I knew that something was happening at an existential level, it almost felt like it was being done to me because I wasn't involved in this. I didn't know what was happening. You know, how could I be the one doing this? About a year after that, I still felt some level of despair. Hmm. You see, I got divorced about six years ago. I felt alone. One night I had this feeling of just being alone. I didn't want to be alone. I wanted to be truly happy. And that night my kids went to bed 
and I sat on my bed and I said, I just knew in that moment that even if I had a perfect partner, all the money I could want, perfect health, perfection in all aspects of my life, fame, whatever, if I had all of those, I would still want to know something. And that something was truth. I had had realizations, but what I wanted was direct experience. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know it from my, from my gut. And the realizations I'd had obviously were not enough for me. So I wanted to have a direct experience. So I just said, look, show me truth in my dream tonight. Hmm. It was heartfelt. It was just pleading. Who were you pleading to? <laughs> Asking God or the universe or whatever to just uh, lay it on. Yeah. yeah, the thing that is alive that I realized that I was part of and I was that just as everyone is that. But I was still carrying a load of longings and desires and all this. True enough, in the middle of the night, I woke up. I didn't look at the clock. I don't know what time it was, but it was night. And I woke up and I had been having this dream. Mm -hmm. And this dream, in this dream, I was in this spaciousness. It was vast and it, it was kind of dark, but it wasn't uh, frightening. It was just spacious and I was kind of in the middle of it. It was just me and I was just like floating and it was silent. And then as I woke up, that dream continued. Hmm. And what happened was that I began to feel it in my body. In here, I felt a- Point, Pointing a, to your third eye area, yeah. I felt this, this droning going on. Huh. It was like a tune, it was three low beats, two high beats, three low beats, two high beats. And it was, I could feel it bumping against my, my skin, like from in out. Yeah, like a little chick pecking the egg, trying to get out, right? Yeah, yeah. just it's going on. And so I'm lying there. And what I know in those moments is this dream is continuing. I am being shown something. And what I am being shown is that the truth of the universe is this silence, this stillness, like a nothingness, if you like. But there is nothing that is truly nothing. Nothing is always something. Mm. And this something is intelligent and there's an order to it. So the silence of my dream, it was like I was consciously being shown that that contrasted the order of these beats. Mm. So that was it. And I was in awe. I was really, you know, happy. I went back to sleep and I woke up, remembered the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And my kids woke up and it was like I hadn't seen them for ages. And, and from that point on, I started to notice different things that I hadn't noticed before. And the garden, the birds and just things around me. And I, I just felt that I wasn't doing the looking when I was looking at my eyes and I looked in the mirror and it was like it wasn't me. Then a few weeks later I looked back and I realized that I just no longer felt lonely mm-hmm. and I no longer felt these emotional longings for something. You know, just occasionally, but only a matter of minutes, it, it might return, but very, very rarely now. Mm-hmm. I just don't feel that emotional stuff. And I didn't realize it at the time. It was only looking back. Hmm. Interesting that you asked and then it, it's like that it says in the Bible, you know, um, 
seek and you shall find, you know. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. Yes, absolutely. We just don't ask. And the thing is that you have to ask, I believe, specifically. Hmm. Not just give me everything that I want, just make right. me happy. Uh, things like that. You've got to be specific. So I said, I want to know truth directly in my dream tonight. And for me, it was an instantaneous healing. It was a healing of uh, on an emotional level. And that was uh, quite a lovely gift for me. Yeah. I, I mean, it raises the question, who responded to that request? Is it our higher self? Is it God or whatever? You know, it's, it's interesting that there should be such a response. And, and part of the answer to that, I think, was contained in your experience, which is that you experienced it as an intelligence. You know, there's this an intelligent order to the universe. It's not just a sort of an impersonal vacuum or something. And whatever we care to call that intelligence or define it as, it does seem to be responsive and aware and, you know, interactive and so on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that the key ingredient that is difficult to find is the, the longing to know, is the, is the sincerity. Now, I'm not saying that I'm, <laughs> you know, uh, more sincere than the next person. Everybody has that longing. Everybody has that sincerity. But what gets in the way of it being manifested is all the emotional stuff. Mm -hmm. And so since my experiences, I've trained as a spiritual counselor and I see clients and it's mm -hmm. work that I absolutely love to do mm -hmm. because the emotional blockages, you could say, or hang-ups, are the blocks to awakening. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. We all have emotions. But it's the uh, people are not willing, or they are willing, depending on who you are, to address that. Because we're scared. We feel that if we go there, it'll be embarrassing. It'll be, we'll be too scared. It will go on and on. How will we cope? Um, just can't go there. Um, we resist it. We fight it. We're ashamed of it. All these emotions. And I guess I feel that I kind of <laughs> traveled all of those emotions. I've experienced, I would say, the end, the ends of my own suffering. Mm. I've experienced grief to the extent where I didn't feel I could contain it. And I'm here. I'm here. It didn't finish me off. Right. So that's really my message that I want. I try and help people with when they come to see me is that your pain is really an illusion. It is not your real self. It is not a, such a big thing as you think it is. It's also not the enemy. It's, it's actually your friend in the sense that it can be the doorway into freedom, right? Yeah. Your suffering is your teacher. Mm -hmm. Basically, for most people, their teacher is their suffering, if they choose to take it. How does a person make that choice uh, if they come to you? They're already feeling pain and stuff, or, or they probably wouldn't be seeking help. How do they voluntarily make a practice of resolving or releasing or feeling or whatever it is you have them do, more than they're already doing? Well, there's two different ways of feeling, your feelings. One is the analytical approach, which is what most people do, the mental, intellectual approach. I know I am fearful. 
I know I'm angry. I know this. And the other way would be to feel it. Aha.、Uh-huh. Just to sort of maybe sit and close your eyes and do, allow yourself to actually feel the feeling directly, rather than sort of distracting yourself and trying to kind of keep it in the background, that sort of thing. Yeah, to feel it in your body, because at the end of the day, it's direct experience. Whether we're talking about direct experience of truth itself, or we're talking about something else, which is part of truth, but you know what I mean. For the sake of language, if we're talking about direct experience of emotions,、mm-hmm. that is what heals. The directness, the 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 genuine, the authenticity, is what releases and heals. So when you say feel it in your body, what you're saying is that there's a physiological counterpart to an emotion. Its emotion is not just an abstract, you know, ephemeral thing, but it has its sort of physiological correlate. And that by allowing yourself to feel the physiological basis, let's say you are feeling a lot of fear, and maybe you you feel in your solar plexus or something a physical sensation that seems to be correlated with that fear, and by dwelling on that. You dissipate or, or get to the root of the fear. Is that is that a true statement of the way you approach it? I wouldn't say you dwell on it. Uh huh. Dwelling is the mental. Yeah.、Thing. Okay. So I would just say to experience it. Yeah. Allow yourself to have your attention on these physical sensations that are there. Is it, would that be correct? I'm just trying、yes. to get a correct understanding of what your approach is. Yes.、Okay. Yes. Yes, yes. Yeah. When you're meeting with people, do you sort of lead them through a, a procedure of doing that so that they can kind of get the hang of it? No, because I can't do it for them.、Uh-huh. So if I give them the procedure, then I'm just giving them a system whereby they think that they can fix their problem.、Uh-huh. But there is no easy way.、Mm. That's otherwise we'd have the whole world awakening. We're complicated little beings, you know. We have all these beliefs, and we have all these conditioning, religious conditioning. We have, at the end of the day, we have self-worth issues.、Mm-hmm. We don't feel worthy, etc. And it all links back to whatever specific circumstances we've had in in our lives. But all of that, in my experience, can be released,、mm-hmm. and that needs to be done before we can allow the space. For direct experience of truth to take place,、mm-hmm. but as long as we're being inauthentic, so it's having self-knowledge of what really is going on for you, and that's painful sometimes. That's not comfortable,、mm-hmm. if we can be honest. But that's the thing that it's very difficult to、mm-hmm. be honest. So what generally happens, and it was difficult for me to be honest. I was like completely intellectual. So what happens is generally, if it is deemed, if, if that's the right word, that the time is right for you, it's your turn now. Something's going to happen in your life, and then you still have choices to become authentic or not in that moment. In other words, to accept the opportunity or or not. Yeah. yeah. Although you know, I would say that you know, there's a saying in Zen that enlightenment is an accident, but spiritual practice makes you accident prone. It's like in your own case,、yeah. you, you were doing all these things for years. You were a sincere spiritual seeker, I would say. Eventually, you kind of got to a crisis, and you know, didn't know where to turn, and you know, had this breakthrough. 
And it's hard to say, you know, what would have happened had you done things differently and just been an IT person without any thought of spiritual things or a German translator or whatever. It's hard to say what would have happened. But, you know, it does seem that there are cases of people awakening out of the blue with no prior interest in this sort of stuff. But it seems that predominantly people who have spiritual awakenings have had an interest in it and have done practices and have read books and have kind of had their attention in that area. So I wouldn't devalue that, although it's hard to draw a direct cause and effect relationship. Maybe it's just that people who are destined to have an awakening are kind of interested in this kind of stuff before they get to the point where it's ready to happen. I don't know. But in my own experience, I would have to say that I feel like my own spiritual practice has been very influential and has not just been a sort of a, a spinning of wheels. It's, it's from day one, it had a profound impact on my life. Yeah. I mean, I would say that, say someone is spontaneously awakened. Right. And I've come across stories of people who have that happen. I've also read stories of where that's happened, but that person just simply has been unable to, for want of a better word, integrate it into their life. Mm -hmm. Because even though you can have this kind of awakening, this is my experience. There is still that healing journey. Mm. You can't just like awaken and everything's kind of made good. Absolutely. In fact, sometimes the healing journey really kind of starts in earnest after the awakening. You know, it, yeah. it sort of unleashes this whole Pandora's box of stuff that hadn't been dealt with and now it has to be dealt with. There's no choice anymore. Exactly. Hmm. Your back's against the wall and you have to push through the wall. Mm -hmm. There's no other way. In your own case, after you had this awakening about three years ago, was the awakening pretty much a result of your facing and feeling all the stuff that you had been repressing? Or did the awakening, as we were just saying, open up the, the box and all kinds of other stuff started to be felt and, and dealt with in even greater quantity? Or is it, or maybe both? I think it was simultaneous. Yeah. I mean, who, who can really say what comes first? can't really say that True. in truth, be honest, yeah. you just can't. So it, it was all a mishmash of stuff happening. And um, as I healed and released and realized that I was carrying a whole load of beliefs that were just not true and that really it's our thinking and our mind, at our mind level that is the problem, the, the beliefs that we hold are the problem mm -hmm. because that's how we experience life, through our filter. Suffering is a belief. In simplistic terms, it's just a belief, but people don't want to let go of them. Okay, now somebody might ask, let's say you have bone cancer, and it's extremely mm -hmm. painful. Is your suffering a belief, or do you have any choice other than to suffer under those circumstances? Depends what you mean by suffering, I guess. The suffering that I'm talking about is unconscious suffering. Mm. I'm talking about the suffering that comes from the beliefs. If you have a belief that says that I'm not worthy, you know, there's something wrong with me or, you know, people have all sorts of beliefs about themselves, um, as I did too and sometimes still do. So if you have that kind of belief, then perhaps your bone cancer is connected with that. I don't really know. But what I'm talking about is the suffering that is unconscious. There is suffering that is what I call genuine or what is circumstantial if you like. So you do all this healing and you clear your slate, right? And then you still have to live life. 
right? You can't just go off and live anywhere on this planet where there wouldn't be challenges and demands and you have to deal with daily life. We live in this, this world that is far from ideal. So at times we will encounter challenges and we may get ill, we may have disappointments, we may have losses, etc., mm -hmm. worries to do with living in this world. And that can't be avoided. We're not, you know, we're not saying that you do your healing and then you never have a problem, you never suffer. So I guess the point I'm making is whether one is willing to become conscious of one's suffering as that suffering is taking place. So we're talking about the moment, we're not talking about some nebulous thing where you kind of fix yourself and then everything's fine. So we're talking about we live in the moment, we live day to day, and as things come up, the question is, are you willing to be conscious? What is going on? And if you're ill, who knows where that may well open up some positives in your life. It's not necessarily that it will be completely dark. It's your reaction to it is up to you. And at the end of the day, you can just feel what is there. And in my experience, feeling your pain is what releases it. It's the resistance to it that keeps it there. Jiddu Krishnamurti said, pain is what frees you from pain. Suffering is what frees you from suffering. It takes a thorn to remove a thorn. Yeah. To experience the pain takes away the pain. To experience the suffering, that means allowing it. So if you're ill, just experience and accept that you're going to be ill, that you're going to not be happy about that, that that is your experience. I think there's another dimension to this too, which uh, might tie back to what you were saying earlier about sense of emptiness or nothingness that you felt in your gut. In your own experience, is there a sense that, all right, I am this woman living in London with two kids doing these things and so on and so forth, but at the very same time, there's another dimension to what I am that is, mm. none, of, that is none of those things. You know, yeah. it's, it's silence or it's emptiness or it's, it's nothingness or it's whatever you want to call it. And, and that is as present, uh, if not more so, as the individuated aspects of my life. Absolutely. So it's always a sort of juxtaposition in a way, or it's more that this awareness that once you experience that, it can't disappear. It's like tasting a beautiful mango. You can't then say you've never tasted one. So it's always there. But sometimes, if life throws a, a difficult um, thing at you, then you might lose that sense for a while. But essentially, it's always there. And from that point of view, the suffering that you might go through, the emotions that you might experience, in actual fact, you will experience, in my experience, I experience them more fully than I ever did. So I can play the game and be free to, to experience my emotions. And that in itself is a freedom. So what I found difficult about emotions is when I've had the brakes on and, and I've sort of made myself wrong for having those. Mm. But now I give myself permission, not consciously or mentally, but it's just, it's just become a, a habit more. Just, it's okay. Mm -hmm. It's human life. What, what do you expect? Do you read or, or listen to any 
you know, modern teachers? I mean, you've interviewed a lot of people. I, I haven't seen all your interviews yet, but are there any kind of popular teachers whose expressions kind of resonate with the way you see things, that, you know, such as Eckhart Tolle or Adyashanti or any of these people? Or do you mm -hmm. find that there's some kind of nuggets of truth in all of them in, in what they're saying? Oh, I think most of them are great, fantastic, wonderful. I've watched their videos, I've read Eckhart Tolle, along with Jiddu Krishnamurti, his book The Power of Now was, was a turning point for me. I really, really got the pain body, you know, <laughs> yeah. and that is essential to understanding mm -hmm. that, you know, we're so addicted to our pain, we don't know how to be happy. I like Barry Long as well, I'm very incisive. He said, I remember reading somewhere, I'm going to tell you the truth about life and uh, you're not going to like it. And the truth is that you have no right to be unhappy. And uh, that's so true, you know, but most of us are really, frankly, addicted to our emotions. The drama of feeling certain emotions, whether it, whatever it is, anger, depression. You know, a lot of people who are depressed, they, they actually at some level enjoy it. And probably if people are watching this, they'll go, ah, you know, but it's true. I've had people come to me with depression and they know their situation. They know what their problems are. But then there comes a choice. That is not something anyone else can do for you. You have to make the choice to be happy. You have to make the choice to no longer create pain for yourself and for others. So Eckhart Tolle, he, his explanation of the pain body was, was very good. They're all great, these mm -hmm. teachers, fantastic. Well, you um, know, people pay good money to go and see scary movies and sad movies and, mm -hmm. you know, violent movies and all that. And, uh, you know, life is just a bigger movie that, you know, you get for free, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't even have to pay for it, right? No, it's right, right in your living room. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, so we must, we must have signed up for it. After your awakening about three years ago, you, you mentioned that, you know, obviously you still have things come up and things you have to deal with and so on, but I get the sense that you're dealing with them and, and experiencing them from a very different um, perspective or a very different orientation now. You're able to handle them quite differently than ever before. Yeah. It's, it, they come and they go. Yeah. You know, it's like that. Yeah, there's like a saying in the in the Indian literature that impressions can be like a line on stone, which is you know etched very permanently and indelibly, or they can be like a line on sand, which you know the impression's there, or it can, and it, but it can be wiped away, or it can be like a line on water, or even a line on air. You know, you have the impression. In fact, the impression, as you were saying earlier, you experience things more richly. I mean, it's it's easier to make a deep impression in water than it is on stone, but yeah. it doesn't stay. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's immediately passed, smoothed over again. Yeah, that's right. I always find it difficult to explain this, but basically you have emotions and you have difficulties in life, but they're not the be-all and end-all. They're just a natural part of life. They're episodes. So, they're episodes. So why resist them? Why try to change them? Just let them come and they go. Mm -hmm. And if they don't go, they don't go. So what? It's the awareness that takes the sting away from emotions because we're not totally immersed in what that means about us and what that means about somebody else and the drama and, you know, I guess I've just got bored with the drama. Mm -hmm. Just can't do it anymore. 
There's another analogy which I think illustrates your point, which is that in a movie theater you have what's, what you've come to see, which is the movies playing on the screen, but there's also the screen, and we totally overlook the screen. But once you recognize that there's this kind of constant screen that's there all the time, regardless of what movies are playing on it, and you realize that, you know, stretching the metaphor a bit, you realize I am that screen, you know, yeah. and that's my identification. And all these changing things are not really me. They're just they're just sort of passing phases. Then it makes life a lot easier to deal with. Yeah, I remember that reminds me. I wrote a blog um, a while back, and it was to do with a movie screen. And it's like my experience has been that previously it was like I was watching the adverts before the movie started. All right, I read you know? that. Yeah, <laughs> continue. Yeah. Tell the story. Yeah. Yeah, and you're like waiting for the movie to start. And that was what life felt like before. Mm. Now it's like the movie's happening as I speak. It is now. Yeah. And the, the difference is huge, and yet it's not obvious. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of difficult to explain, but you know what I mean? It's here and now. Rather than the rehearsed life that we live, mm -hmm. we're always rehearsing and, and kind of planning before it happens. The thought is there. And Jiddu Krishnamurti, he said, thought is always old. And thought is where your suffering comes from. Hmm. And it's true. If we could just be here and now, we'd be happy. Mm -hmm. We'd be peaceful. Have you felt uh, a continued deepening or clarification or sense of progress since your kind of like, since your watershed moment of, of awakening? Um, has there, do you feel like you're looking forward to the next? 40 years or whatever of your life as being a, a you know, continued um, unfolding of a deeper appreciation of this? Or do you feel like a sort of a plateau has been reached? Well, I don't really think of it in those ways, actually. I don't feel any thoughts around, am I progressing? Or where will I be in 40 years' time? Or anything like that. But looking back, it's always when you look back, um, I would say that, yeah, there's been a progression, but I don't consciously think, well, that I want to progress or I need to progress. My thoughts are more really just to be in the moment. Mm -hmm. Would um, it be fair to say that you feel content and fulfilled and satisfied as you are in the moment, and even if this is the way you always were going to be from now on, this would be quite adequate, quite nice, but at the same time, nonetheless, uh, unavoidably, progress seems to be taking place at least it's at least you recognize it retrospectively if not you know as it's happening would that yeah. be an accurate description i would say yes and i would say that yes i feel content and fine except when i'm not <laughs> good point <laughs> you see what i mean yeah absolutely I, it's not like you know <laughs> i'm just a human being yeah in this form and uh, so i just go with the flow yeah, no, good point. I mean, the whole notion of now and, and being in the now and so on uh, is not necessarily a static thing because life is flowing and, and it's flowing in waves, you know, and the waves have their ups and downs, right? And you have to kind of experience them as they come. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. What, what else is there? There's a Byron Katie, she's a lovely spiritual mm -hmm. teacher, and she says, you know, happiness is, is what is. Yeah. And it, it's what is, mm -hmm. and that's a simple thing to say and a simple thing to do if you do it.
Yeah. But people don't do it because they have too much stuff. They have this filter through which they see life and they can't actually see what is here and around them. Even just the title of her book is, is a great lesson, you know, loving what is. Just that title is like a little sutra that you can kind of <laughs> keep, you know, remember. Yeah. And the process itself that she advocates is very valuable. And it, it harkens back to what you were saying earlier about beliefs. I mean, she's really, I think, adept at enabling one to kind of pry loose one's beliefs and, and yeah. you know, not be boxed in by them, not take them so seriously. And to me, that I've said this before in these interviews, but if I had to choose my favorite word, it would be paradox. Um, because there's whatever perspective you take, you can in the in the next breath you can you can see the opposite perspective, and this is what Byron Katie always does. You know, she turns you around, and so it's really hard to sort of take any perspective or belief as absolute. You know, yeah. There's always this on the other hand factor, uh, yeah. And you know, some people might find that disconcerting. You know, where where is your certainty? Where where is your firm footing? But yeah. to me, it's a false footing if you think that a, a belief or a perspective is going to give you security. Uh, and I find um, uncertainty to be much more comfortable place to dwell. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because I think that people generally think that their life is somehow, that they are somehow fixed. That they're fixed according to what they think they are like. They don't realize that actually to other people they're completely different. Yeah. And they're not fixed. They're forever changing. Life is forever changing. Every moment is different. Mm -hmm. In reality, it's different. But we don't get that reality because we're, we're thinking and the thoughts are always the same. They're always frankly boring and they're always just <laughs> completely the same. We have the same thoughts over and over again. Mm -hmm. And it's like such a boring life. It's not alive. It's whether you want to live this life that's alive or not. Why mm. wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, you know, this whole discussion of fix and the point I just brought up about security, I think there's a certain fearfulness that causes people to constrict and to try to hold on to a certain kind of rigid structure in the hopes that it will make them safe. And, you know, what you experienced three years ago, I think, was that that no longer worked for you and you just couldn't hold on to it anymore. And in letting go of it, you found freedom. And yeah. I, I think people eventually arise at that, arrive at that, um, that realization one way or the other. And it's very often forced upon them by circumstance, you know, a divorce, a financial collapse, a disease, a, an illness or something, you know, the, the world collapses. And, you know, sometimes people become suicidal when that happens, but other times they kind of realize, whoa, you know, there's this whole freedom that I never allowed myself to experience until I was yeah. jolted out of it. Yeah, and then you look back and you think, wow, I find that it was really hard being me. <laughs> mm. The way I lived life, I wouldn't want to be that me again. Yeah, I remember Eckhart Tolle's story. He, he was sitting you know, on the edge of his bed contemplating suicide and said, I just can't live with myself anymore. And then he thought, well, wait a minute, are there two of me? Who is this self I cannot live with? <laughs> and then he went, went to bed and the next morning he woke up and w awakened. <laughs> it, it tends to happen quite um, suddenly, I think, yes. Yeah, like when, the, when the fruit is ripe, it falls off the tree. Yeah. 
But yeah. again, I would suggest that there are things we can do to ripen the fruit. I mean, you know, they, <laughs> there's a saying that to which you give your attention grows stronger in your life. And, and I think that uh, there's a certain value in doing what we're doing today and listening, mm -hmm. listening to this kind of stuff and reading the things that interest us that seem to be illuminating. And uh, it definitely brings the pot to a boil more, more quickly, I yeah. think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. You, you can, yeah. Yeah, it just depends to the level to which you get attached to certain practices or methods or teachers. Mm -hmm. I've spoken to people who know about awakening, who know about spiritual practice, who've been doing it for so many years and feel angry at the end of the day because hmm. they haven't got there. Yeah, feel like they haven't gotten their money's worth or something. <laughs> yeah, feel that, you know, by now I should be awakened, I should be, you know. <laughs> yeah. But that longing, there is a sort of attachment to a result that you feel that you should be somewhere. Hmm. And it's only when you kind of give up mm -hmm. that expectation and, and be with where you are, Very which good. is not a great place if we're true, if we're honest. We have to go through that not so great place to realize we are actually really great. You know, everything's yeah. really okay. Well, that's a good um, point. And yeah. I think a lot of times people have been doing spiritual practice for 30 or 40 years and like you say, they feel frustrated, they're not getting it. Actually, I think part of it is that very often they're looking for something other than what it's actually going to be, what it actually is. And yeah. so they have these kind of false expectations of some super wonderland. And, uh, you yeah. know, if they had a, a clearer appreciation of what it actually is that, that they seek to arrive at, they'd realize that they're already there. And, yeah. you know, and then can, recognizing that they have already, so, quote unquote, attained what it is they're trying to attain, they can kind of settle into that and begin to appreciate it. But there's yeah. this sort of carrot dangling in front of the donkey syndrome where they're you know, always chasing after this next thing and it yes. never allows them to um, kind of settle into the, to the now. Yeah, I feel that some people perhaps have an idea that when they should awaken or when they, they become realized, it will be like the way their teacher is or like the way they've read in the books or seen or wh whatever. Exactly. And that's what they want. But mm -hmm. what I found is that you can be yourself. You can be just who you are. I don't need to be like anybody else. Even though other people have helped me and great teachers, etc., etc. Ramana Maharshi, wonderful, you know. But I'm not going to go and wear a loincloth and, and sit somewhere and, and sit in silence and say, say the same things in the same way. You know what I mean? Yeah. I live in London and I'm a mom and I'll say it the way I want to say it. And that's perfectly okay. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't like that. I didn't feel like that before because I felt that I wasn't worthy. You know, I felt there were insecurities there. So I think that when people are like searching and seeking for this, this realization to occur, that in the end, it always comes back to what is actually really there for you. It could well be that will not be some level of, I'm not worthy of this. And there also may well be a little ego thing going on there, saying that in some way I deserve it because I'm in some way special. I've been doing all this spiritual practice for so many years and therefore it's owed to me. You know, there's a lot of little thoughts going on like that. 
Yeah. So we can just admit to those and say, yeah, I feel special or I feel like this or whatever. That can then be released and then you have this space of just openness and then it can hopefully occur at some point or gradually or whatever. But until you're being honest with yourself and find that confidence that, yeah, why shouldn't it happen to you? You know, why should it only be the reserve of, of special people? We're all the same. A friend of mine has a little line in her email signature which says, be yourself, all the other roles are taken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is there anything you feel like that people would find valuable to hear that we haven't touched upon? Any, any kind of major areas that I haven't thought of questions to open up or anything you would like to say that you might, you know, after we hang up from this, you might think, oh, I should have talked about that. Anything like that? Well, I was thinking of, uh, alongside my spiritual counseling, I do something called soul plan readings. Because uh -huh. we were talking about whether someone's destined for awakening or, or whatever. And, and I remember thinking at that point that I do these readings and I happen to think that we have a certain basic game plan in life. And we come into life with certain lessons and, and, and things that we need to learn. And that is in the context of the game that we're playing. Essentially, we just are. But we have to play a game. We, it has to be manifested in some way. You, you, you play your game, I play my game, everyone plays their own game, and the circumstances are different. Anyway, I thought I might mention that, you know, in, in these, uh, my own reading actually did show me that um, it made sense of, the, of my seeking and the fact that my sole purpose is to come into direct truth in this life. It was just like, you know, interesting that I have this external system that tells me that this is what you're going to go through and you're going to go through a dark night of your soul and you're going to awaken, basically. So, wait a minute. So, did you yourself have a soul reading from somebody else and then at a certain point you became qualified to do soul readings for others? Is that what you're saying? I trained in it. I learned the system. Oh. So, there's an actual system you can train in. All right, yeah. so when you meet with people and do a soul plan reading, do you actually get some kind of intuitive sense of what their particular destiny is and then you convey that to them? It's not purely intuitive, although that comes into it. It's an actual system which is based on the sound vibration of your birth name. Huh. So your parents, um, my parents happened to have named me Richard, or Rick is my nickname, and based on the sound vibration, Somehow, the innate wisdom of my parents in choosing that name, which also happened to be my father's name, that the sound vibrations of that name would tell you something about my destiny. Yeah. But there are thousands, if not millions, of Ricks or Richards, I mean, What's, who all yeah. have different destinies. Well, if you consider your destiny to be, well, you know, your external, your job, or your family or something circumstantial, then yeah, that, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about your, your destiny in terms of your highest potential in this life. In their manifestation, people are all different. We're not all the same. So somebody might be more, say, destined, if you like, to be creative write a book or do something like that. Somebody else might be destined to be a spiritual teacher, for example. So in the manifestation in this life, we are different, and that's what the reading indicates. So somebody with the same name as you in the world will have certain similarities 
Hmm. Uh, certainly in terms of your perhaps your inner challenges and the areas that you're drawn towards in terms of possibly your work huh. and your hobbies. So you're thinking that if you had conventions where you got together all the Ricks and all the Marys and all the Georges and all the Johns and so on and so forth, that in each of those conventions all those people would discover fundamental similarities between themselves because they all happen to have the same name. Not the Marys. It would be your full birth name. So oh, whatever so Mary you... Smith or whatever. All the Mary Smiths. Those people would all have a... And all the, yeah. Rick, all the Rick Archers would have some kind of fundamental similarity. If, have you got a middle name? Philip. Yeah, so Rick Philip Archers. Oh, so all you'd the... have to get all the Richard Philip Archers together. That would yeah. be a smaller convention. That would be interesting. <laughs> Yeah. You can actually find people these days, you know, with Facebook and everything. <laughs> Might compare yeah. compare notes with them. Well, yeah, I guess you could do a survey and you know, I'm despite all the experiences I've been through and and experienced, I'm pretty cynical and not cynical, but maybe skeptical, questioning uh -huh. yeah. ways, you know. This system was something I learned as part of my diploma in spiritual counseling. It wasn't um something that I set out to do, mm -hmm. but it just happened to be part of it. And it's just turned out that it's always really accurate. Yeah, it's so it kind of stood the test of your cynicism and, and skepticism. Yeah, you, absolutely. You asked all the it, questions and you became convinced that, yeah. it's, that it's really yeah. interesting. Because it does seem rather arbitrary what one gets named, but I suppose, you know, from you playing the other hand game, it's not, nothing's arbitrary and there's a reason why you got named what you're named. Yes, yes. And, you know, there is there's something that uh, I haven't quite perhaps integrated, I don't know. There is the awakening experience, right? There uh -huh. is the existing in this stillness, if you like. And then there is the life itself, the physical form, life, 3D, whatever. And I'm very interested in like the new age side of things, ascension, um, the raising of consciousness on this planet and what happens after we die. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm hugely interested in that because I really, my, my one wish would be that uh, people would just awaken, you know, mm -hmm. it would just sort everything out, wouldn't it? So this, this soul plan thing kind of fits in in the sense that life is a series of reincarnations. Mm -hmm. Before we're born, it seems that there is intricate planning for each of our lives. Yeah. And part of that planning involves this name. Interesting. Have you ever read the books uh, by Michael Newton, Journey of Souls and Destiny of Souls? No. You'd, you'd like him. He, he was this, or is, I think he's still alive. Uh, he is a hypnotist and he was hypnotizing people and he discovered that he was sending them back not to past lives but, but to the period between lives. And he, he made that his specialty and ended, ended up you know, hypnotizing thousands of people into this period between lives. And there was so much similarity between their accounts of what they were saying to him that he charted out the whole thing in great precise detail with all the stages and councils we appear before and how, how many members are on the council and where they're seated and all kinds of precise details that, that he found time and again people were corroborating in each new session. Yeah. Um, you, might, you might enjoy those books. Michael Newton. Michael yeah. Newton. Yeah, I'll check that out. It reminds me of one person that I've interviewed called Susie Ward, Suzanne Ward. Mm -hmm. I've interviewed her twice. She lives in the US. 
Um, her son died in a vehicle crash when he was 17 in 1980, and 14 years later he started to speak to her yeah. through telepathy. Uh -huh. And she's written several books, and she's uh -huh. got quite a following. And Matthew, from the other side, sends messages, detailed accounts of what it's like over there. It's like this world in, a, in many, many ways, but formless. Mm -hmm. And yet they create form through thought and create buildings and so on, but they're not really physical. Yeah, they're physical of a different sort, you know, maybe <laughs> subtle physical. That's interesting yeah. that, it's interesting that you're fascinated with this because, you know, a lot of people who've had awakenings, they kind of glom on to the impersonal aspect of it and begin to just dismiss everything else as a, as a fantasy. Yes. You know, yes. like Tony Parsons and people like that, you know, oh, reincarnation is bunk, there is no God, you know, there is no self, there is no person, it's just this, you know, this now, yes. and so on. And, um, you know, I have a bone to pick with that. I, I sort of feel like the reality of the now or of the nothingness or of the emptiness or of whatever you want to call it does not negate this marvelous, diverse, brilliant, divinely created uh, universe and all with all of its levels and facets and you know mysteries even though ultimately it might be argued that it's all an illusion that it's that really the whole nothing ever happened and the whole thing is unmanifest you know that's not what we live and no. there, there's obviously a you know no matter how steeped in in nothingness and impersonality you may be whack your thumb with a hammer and there's going to be some kind of manifest yeah. experience. <laughs> exactly. I'm really glad you said that because I've been pondering this for some time because mm -hmm. I've always been interested in, in like the new age movement you could call it and then all this uh, awakening happened and then I'm thinking well now what do I do? If I read spiritual teachers and, and so on they never talk about like ascension or angels you know I've mm -hmm. had angel communications unequivocal angel communications yeah. and and you know other things you know I, I I'm pretty sure that I astral project in my dreams and I mm -hmm. fly vertically up and things like that I'm fascinated by all of that you yeah. know I'm fascinated by the game that has been created mm -hmm. for us to enjoy I'm I mean glad. obviously we we came into this life to live it not to just sort of negate it you know yeah the thing is that you, you have this awakening and you're in this nothingness. What do you then do? Do you just sit there and watch people kill each other? Do you just sit there, watch people suffering? And okay, that suffering is kind of relative because ultimately you can say, but that's really kind of like an intellectual thing to say in a way that, oh, well, you know, ultimately we're, we're all consciousness and it's all illusion, so it doesn't matter. Right. It does matter. How can you blind yourself to kids suffering? Absolutely. What if your daughter dies? Is that an illusion? Yeah. You know? If your if family member dies, I can't believe there would be a human being who's awakened who would not feel grief. So and you, what and you see that among the greatest saints, you know, the great spiritual teachers. If they really took to heart the notion that the whole thing is an illusion, they just go sit in a cave and let everything go to hell. You know, but they dedicate themselves to trying to help others and, and you know, doing all kinds of things on all kinds of levels, not just not just spiritual teaching, but building houses for people and setting up leper communities or whatever. You know, the, this stuff has always gone on among the great um, spiritual luminaries of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I feel that upon awakening, there is one basic calling which manifests in different ways, and that is to help this world and to help other people. Um, what 
to sit in, in a little spiritual ego as if nothing matters doesn't make sense to me. And maybe it's the role of some spiritual teachers to just sort of toot the horn of neti neti, you know, just to sort of emphasize the, the impersonal nature and, and cut people free from their attachment to, you know, the relative. But I don't think it's the whole story. You know, if that's their role, it's not the complete role. And, you know, others are going to play more manifest, involved roles, such as yourself. See, what I would be interested to know with those kind of teachers is I would like to be a fly on the wall when they're living their daily life. Yeah. That's what I'd like to see. Not what they say when people are, are watching them. I would want to know what they're really like on a day-to-day -day basis. That is where you find out what someone's about. Yeah. Right? And very often you find that we all do become flies on the wall some aspect of their personal lives becomes public and you realize, well, this, this person was a lot more human than he let on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And there are many spiritual teachers. And I don't judge because I, know, I understand that people are human. There's no perfect human being. But I, I hear people say, you know, I, I don't like that spiritual teacher because he was having affairs or he was doing this or he was into money big time or whatever. But I suppose I kind of am able to separate the two. The message, you know, helps me enormously. I'm not really too interested in their personal lives. Mm -hmm. And people are human beings. Yeah, there was a great uh, musical group in the U.S. Uh, a while back who used to be Bob Dylan's backup band called The Band. That was the name yeah. of the group. And there's a line from one of their songs which was, Take what you need and leave the rest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bob Dylan was one of my heroes. Mm. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, maybe Bob Dylan's a good note to end on. Yeah. <laughs> we could have some kind of lead-out music from one of his songs. But yeah. uh, anyway, this has been a delightful conversation. Those who might happen to be just listening to this, if you go to batgap.com, there will be a, a little section of the site where you'll see a little bio of Rina Gognesia, who's the person I've been speaking with, and that will contain links to her website, whatever links you want to put in that you think are significant. Yeah, you have more than one website. You also have a podcast, so you can send me a little bio with a couple paragraphs with links to all those things, and I'll put it up there for people to find, and I will also make sure you get access to this video so that you can put it on your, your website if you want to. Yeah. So, so thanks. It's been uh, great fun. Great. Thanks. I feel that perhaps you were looking for <laughs> some amazing words, but I feel that my awakening has simply been just to be who I am. Yeah, and no, if you look at the batgap.com, the whole theme of it is ordinary people who have undergone a spiritual awakening. And ultimately, we're all ordinary people, you know, even, even though some of us might appear to be more extraordinary. When you get right down to it, we're all yeah. basically made of the same stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, great. Good. Well, thanks, Rita. We'll be in touch. And uh, those of you watching or listening, you've been watching or listening to Buddha at the Gas Pump, Rick Archer speaking with Rina Gognaja.